of our unpaid labor raising successive generations can see, be seen more clearly by everyone. So we think it's time to bring the battle out into the open and raise some demands. Uh, what's a strike without demands, after all? That's Jenny Brown, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jenny Brown on women, labor pains. In 2018, the birth rate in the United States reached its lowest levels in decades. This alarmed the patriarchal class who want to control women's bodies. Reproductive rights and access to abortion are under sustained political attack. Roe v. Wade is under threat. What role does misogyny play in gender relations? Feminist activists assert that declining birth rates represent a work slowdown or strike in the face of the poor conditions for those who do the work of bearing and raising children and the accompanying financial stress. The U.S. economy relies on the unpaid labor of millions of often overworked and exhausted women. What happens when they organize and say, no more? Unpaid work, particularly bearing and rearing children, must be paid for. Author and activist Jenny Brown says, when it comes to compensating for the labor of having kids, the U.S. is truly at the bottom. Our guest today is Jenny Brown. She's National Women's Liberation Organizer and former editor of Labor Notes. She was a leader in the grassroots campaign to make morning-after-pill contraception available over-the-counter and was a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. She's the author of Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now, and Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. She spoke at the University of California at Berkeley in December 2019 at an event organized by the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. And now, Jenny Brown. I was part of a group of women who worked from 2003 to 2013 campaigning to make the morning after pill, basically after sex contraception, available without prescription in the United States. So dozens of other countries had this when we started. Um, it's also known as emergency contraception, and the pill is a higher dose of the hormones found in oral contraceptives, and it works by delaying ovulation. Um, it's effective up to 120 hours after sex, but it's most effective the, mo the sooner you take it. Um, so the prescription requirement meant that if you needed it, say starting on a Friday night, you were in a comical rush to try to find a doctor or a clinic, get a prescription, fill the prescription, all in time for it to be effective. Um, in 2003, the Food and Drug Administration's medical experts agreed that the extra time and expense demanded by the prescription requirement was unnecessary and a public health hazard. They voted 23 to 4 that the drug should go over the counter and 27 to 0 that the drug was safe. But to read the controversy surrounding it, you would think this was the most dangerous pill in America. Congress members sent inflammatory letters urging the FDA to reject it. Powerful players in the George W. Bush White House pressured the agency, which violated FDA rules. When the FDA finally recommended making the pill over the counter for all ages, uh, the administration of newly elected Bar President Barack Obama overruled it, and he said he didn't want his young daughters to be able to buy it. 
So why was this pill such a threat? You know, we debated this among ourselves as we testified about our experiences with contraception before the FDA's advisory boards. Um, we faxed thousands of signatures to the FDA pledging to illegally give a friend the morning after pill. We threw packages of the pill into crowds at rallies, and we even sat down and blocked the doors of the FDA headquarters at one point um, and got arrested doing that. Nine of us brought a lawsuit asking the FDA to follow its own procedures and put the pill over the counter for all ages. And in 2013, we won unrestricted access when a federal judge ordered the Obama administration to make the pill available over the counter to anyone. But still, we were surprised that the Obama administration joined the attack on the morning after pill. You know, we had grumbled about the Democratic Party, but it still seemed to largely support reproductive rights. And here we were talking about a contraceptive. Um, well, I was working for the Red Stockings Women's Liberation Archives at the time, and we started to examine more closely why opposition to birth control was once again becoming mainstream. It certainly wasn't a popular upsurge or politicians pandering to their base, since even among people who are against abortion, 80% who are polled support contraception. So we looked at the current explanations for the attacks on both birth control and abortion, and the history of birth control restrictions in the United States. We looked at the drop in U.S. birth rate and establishment reactions to it. We looked at the situation in other countries. And then we looked at our own experience of having and raising children or deciding not to. And I'll review some of what we found. So for decades, we've been told that abortion is just a wedge issue used by Republicans to split working class Catholics away from the Democratic Party and to excite a Protestant evangelical base. The main goal of anti-abortion politics, we've been instructed by such writers as Thomas Frank, is not actually to curtail abortion. Instead, it's to provide a conservative base of voters who will elect politicians whose um, interests really lie with the 1%. Feminist law professor Joan C. Williams explained recently, quote, starting in the 1970s, Republicans have offered support for working class anti-abortion views in exchange for working class support for pro-business positions. Unquote. So according to this view, politicians in the 1% really don't care one way or the other about abortion. They're just using the issue to get votes. But we came to suspect that the anti-abortion politics that we see today are not fundamentally about politicians pandering to a right-wing base. Instead, we concluded that these sharp conflicts originate in the age-old dispute over the labor of bearing and rearing children. Who will do it and who will pay for it? Looking in the feminist archives, you can see that in the second wave that started in the 1960s, women's childbearing role was primarily seen as a vulnerability, an unfair burden, and an excuse to discriminate against women. And all this was certainly true. But as birth rates have fallen throughout the developed world, becoming lower than what is required for a replacement of the existing population, this baby bust has revealed the other side of women's procreative work, its necessity and power. Pundits are foretelling economic doom if women don't step up reproduction. And just as workers have found that bargaining power comes from uniting and refusing to work, striking, women's bargaining power has increased when we have not produced children at desired rates. We found that in comparable countries, panic over low birth rates has led governments to create programs to help childbearing and childrearing, providing generous paid maternal or parental leave, free or subsidized childcare, universal health care, monthly cash payments to parents, plentiful sick leave and long vacations, shorter work weeks, free schooling through college, and subsidies for housing. 
Here in the United States, by contrast, the labor of bearing and rearing children is done cheaply with the cost pushed onto the family to be paid out of our strained wages or added to our unpaid workload. The U.S. is virtually the only country with no national paid parental leave law, and 50 countries provide six months or more of paid leave. When it comes to compensating the labor of having kids, the United States is truly at the bottom. At the same time, U.S. women have faced a sustained assault on our ability to control whether and when we have children, and we now face extraordinary obstacles. The biggest problem, of course, is price. Medicaid won't cover abortion in most states, hitting low-wage workers and the unemployed the hardest. Then there's a long list of state restrictions. There are waiting periods, required sonograms, which require more time and drive up the price. Clinics are few and far between due to laws designed to put them out of business and restrict the supply of doctors. Six states have only one remaining abortion clinic. Most states have parental consent or notification laws, and in some states, doctors are forced to read anti-abortion scripts that lie to women telling them abortion increases their risk of cancer, suicide, or infertility. And then there are the fake clinics run by anti-abortion zealots designed to look like medical facilities to confuse women now receiving public funds in 14 states. Pill abortions are walled up behind FDA restrictions which make them just as expensive and inconvenient as a surgical abortion. And we face, of course, the very real possibility that Roe's protections will be weakened further, allowing states to basically outlaw elective abortion and around half seem to be on track to do so. Well, contrast this to Canada, where abortion is free at any stage of pregnancy through a national health care system. And then not just abortion, but birth control is under attack. Pharmacists refuse to dispense birth control pills, backed up by state conscience clauses. Government funding for family planning is attacked based on fraudulent videos of Planned Parenthood staff members. Birth control is denounced or ignored in school sex education classes. Employers claim religious exemptions to exclude some contraceptive coverage from health insurance, and then they get backing from the Supreme Court. In Texas, where restrictions and regulations closed 82 family planning clinics after 2011, birth control use went down, and childbearing rose 27% for women in the affected areas compared to areas that still had birth control access. The costs and obstacles mean that our unintended birth rate is roughly double that in countries where birth control and abortion are readily available and free through national health systems. One in three births in the United States is unintended. So we asked, why is this happening? We looked at why abortion was outlawed in the first place in the United States. Following English common law, abortion was legal at the founding of the country as long as it was before quickening, which is when you can feel the fetus move around the fourth month. And quickening depended on the report of the person who's pregnant and doesn't want to be, so we can say that abortion as we think of it was largely legal. Um, we had always understood that it was prudery and religious objections that led birth control and abortion to be outlawed in 1873 with the federal Comstock law. But it turns out that these were not the main reasons given at the time. In fact, discussions of abortion in the 1860s are peppered with references to declining birth rates. State laws against abortion were enacted by men worried that women were, quote, avoiding the duties and responsibilities of married life, unquote, resulting in smaller families. They feared that women were abandoning their child-rearing work at home to take up jobs or careers, and they worried that Protestant native-born women were using abortion to limit their births, while Catholics and recent immigrants were having lots of children. An Ohio Senate Select Committee convened in 1867 asked, 
Shall we permit our broad and fertile prairies to be settled only by the children of aliens? If not, the committee said, native-born women must be convinced not to have abortions by making the practice illegal. And this may sound similar to anti-immigrant tweets that we hear from, for example, Congress member Steve King of Iowa. 19th century opposition to abortion was led by what were then called the regular doctors, who hoped to drive out of business the irregulars, the midwives and doctoresses, who provided abortions and other basic care and were their main competition. But for decades, they couldn't get clergy, lawmakers, and newspapers to pay any attention. Uh, after the Civil War, the doctors did manage to gain traction as the birth rate continued to decline, and the women's rights movement was raising demands that women have a public role, access to education, an independent existence beyond the legal and financial control of husbands and fathers. Lobbying by doctors meant that by the 1870s, many states had passed statutes that outlawed all abortions, no matter how early. And the new laws provided for punishment of the woman as well as the practitioner, which was an indication that the lawmakers were aiming to stop women from getting abortions and not just trying to deter incompetent practitioners who were injuring and killing their patients. Um, the ban became total in 1873 when all abortion was outlawed in the United States along with all contraceptives and any information about sex or the process of reproduction. The federal Comstock law gave that famous purity crusader, Anthony Comstock, the ability to raid any, any bookstore, medical facility, college, office, or home to seize not just contraceptive devices or pills, but any written descriptions of contraception and abortion, including medical texts. All of it was classed as obscenity. And many Comstock laws followed in most states, and some were even stricter, explicitly forbidding doctors from conveying information to their patients about contraception and abortion. So contrary to the impression left by some accounts, the Comstock law was not the accomplishment of one freakishly effective prude, but the triumph of a crackdown decades in the making against women who were curbing their reproduction. Um, and so it was that abortion, birth control, and information about reproduction were lumped together, not just in the minds of most people, but in the law. They served the same purpose and they had the same effect, lowering the birth rate and freeing up women to do other things. Well, fast forward 100 years, while the birth rate was high during the long post-war baby boom, and it was longer, our baby boom was longer than most other countries, it dropped in the 1970s as abortion and birth control became easier to get. But the birth rate in the U.S. was a demographic puzzle throughout the 80s and 90s. Despite being a developed country, our rate st stayed high while it was dropping below the 2.1 replacement rate throughout the developed world. 2.1 children per woman on average are required to replace her and her male counterpart in the population. However, starting this century, the U.S. birth rate has dropped below replacement and is now considerably below the level needed for a stable population. When I wrote the book, it was 1.76. It's now dropped to 1.72. Some people accept, expected it to go up as unemployment dropped, but it has not budged. This has caused concern and even panic um, at some establishment think tanks. Stephen Philip Kramer of the National Defense University, uh, who I think you could describe as a liberal or a centrist, wrote a book in 2014 called The Other Population Crisis, What Governments Can Do About Falling Birth Rates. He writes... Quote, declining birth rates constitute a problem for the survival and security of nations in the broadest existential sense of national security. For several hundred years, economic growth has been tied to growth in population. 
increasing the size of the domestic market and labor force, unquote. Conservative Jonathan Last, promoting his 2013 book, What to Expect When No, no One's Expecting, <laughs> cautioned, the nation's falling fertility rate is at the root cause of many of our problems and it's only getting worse, unquote. And the worries cross the political aisle. Philip Longman of the Centrist New America Foundation writes in his book, The Empty Cradle, that, quote, capitalism has never flourished except when um, accompanied by population growth, and it is now languishing in those parts of the world, such as Japan, Europe, and the Great Plains of the United States, where population has become stagnant, unquote. These writers and many others fret about flagging consumer demand immigration and what they see as its attendant political problems, an aging workforce causing rises in entitlement spending, social, social security and Medicare, and how to keep the U.S. military strong when both the working age tax base and the supply of young people to enlist are shrinking. And they worry that the nation's women are not providing uh, a large enough workforce for employers. This change in the establishment's thoughts around this has been largely unnoticed by feminists. And this is probably because second wave feminism arose starting in the 1960s during a brief 20 year period when government planner, planners were panicking not about low birth rates but about high ones. They were panicking about overpopulation. So for feminists, this period is burned in our minds because it was characterized by horrific reproductive coercion in the form of forced sterilization aimed at women receiving welfare, women of color, in particular African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, and Puerto Ricans. The sterilization operation was so common it was called a Mississippi appendectomy, and in Puerto Rico, simply la operación. This population panic and the forced sterilization that accompanied it lasted two decades, from the mid-50s to the mid-70s, coinciding with the period that the feminist movement built into a second wave. But... 50 years on, it's a different world. Half the world's population now lives in countries where the birth rate is below replacement levels, and in 10 years, the United Nations projects 67% will. Still, many feminists continue to suspect that the power structure is preoccupied with too much population, especially among the low-waged and women of color. And this has caused us to tune out, even as establishment think tanks agonize about low birth rates, warn of worker shortages, and decry aging populations. Well, the first birth strikes we know of on U.S. soil were conducted by enslaved African women who used many methods to stop getting pregnant, and if they did get pregnant, to prevent giving birth. Some chewed cotton roots as a contraceptive. Others secretly worked with midwives to induce miscarriages. The brutal regime of slavery in the U.S. and Caribbean established that any child of an enslaved woman automatically became property of the slave owner, even if the father was free. After 1808, when the United States made slave importation illegal, slavery became a closed system that could only perpetuate itself through the childbearing of enslaved women, and an even greater premium was put on their maternal labor. Slave owners measured in money the reproductive work of the African women they enslaved, and then children became a valuable commodity to be sold to other slave owners um, and used as collateral for loans. Essentially, they became money. So under slavery, there was a brutal security apparatus to prevent slaves from escaping. But with the end of slavery, big landowners became worried that their black workers might leave. So they passed laws to restrict the movements of freed people, arresting as vagrants any who could not prove employment, and making it illegal to relocate if you owed money 
This was the goal of a lot of the black codes that were first introduced in Mississippi and then across the South. Nonetheless, blacks did leave in increasing numbers, fleeing economic exploitation and white supremacist terror. And their movement north and west turned into what historians call the Great Migration, one of the largest and most rapid internal movements of people in history, according to historian Nicholas Lehman. Um, as the Great Migration gained momentum in 1916, the Southern power structure mobilized to stop it. Harlem artist Jacob Lawrence, who documented the Great Migration in a 60-painting series, wrote, The South was interested in keeping cheap labor. They often went to train stations and arrested Negroes wholesale, which in turn made them miss their trains, unquote. Georgia's Macon Telegraph opined in 1916, quote, We must have the Negro in the South. It is the most pressing thing before this state today. Matters of governorships and judgeships are only bagatelle compared to the real importance of this Negro exodus, unquote. As during slavery, white landowners and employers needed black workers whose work made the land productive and the big landowners wealthy. So it was not only white landowners' racial animus, but their desire to keep black people working and the immense value of their labor that was foremost in the minds of the homicidal racists that ran the slave South and its Jim Crow successors. After World War II, an increase in resistance was met by an increase in repression. As the civil rights movement grew, that repression started to include forced sterilization. Um, this was new. There had not actually been much special attention paid to African-American birth rates as distinct from whites until the Great Depression. Black people had largely been spared the eugenicist scalpel because public welfare programs had mainly been whites only, as were the institutions where the doctors did most of the involuntary sterilizations. And eugenics was mostly about, quote-unquote, improving the white race, and black people weren't even on the radar yet. And in fact, birth control campaigners within the black community had to make great efforts to win rights to the same level of access to birth control clinics that white women already had. But after World War II, as black organizing increased, and as African Americans won access to programs from which they had been previously excluded, the white power structure suddenly became very concerned that the black birth rate was too high. And in the South, another factor was at work. The labor-intensive cotton farming system was ending due to mechanization. The change was driven first by the labor shortage during World War II, and then by white fears of returning black GIs. Nicholas Lehman quotes a planter's impassioned letter to the local cotton industry association in 1944. Quote, I strongly advocate the farmers of the Mississippi Delta changing as rapidly as possible from the old tenant or sharecropping system. Mechanized farming will require only a fraction of the amount of labor which is required by the share crop system, thereby tending to equalize the white and Negro population, which would automatically make our racial problem easier to handle, unquote. So first, mechanical pickers were brought in, replacing the picking job, but then leaving the task of chopping. And plantations started to kick their resident workers out, hiring day labor for the chopping jobs. Uh, Lehman writes that as black war veterans returned to Mississippi and tried to register to vote, the white plantation owners got even more nervous because African Americans outnumbered whites and could easily outvote them in some places three to one. Lehman writes, quote, the idea of getting the numbers of blacks and whites in the Delta a little closer to equilibrium began to seem attractive to whites on political as well as economic grounds, unquote. Then in the late 1950s, planters started to use herbicides to keep down the weeds, which eliminated the chopping job. So this explains the um, quick about-face of the southern white power structure from 
trying from mobilizing to prevent black workers from leaving to forcibly sterilizing black women and trying to force them to leave. A 1975 flyer produced by the New York Wages for Housework Committee, I think, sums up their analysis kind of nicely of the reasons for involuntary sterilization at the same time that birth control and abortion are being still being denied to people. Quote, in the USA, it is welfare women and black women in particular who are the main target of the government sterilization policy. When they need more workers, we women are forbidden any form of contraception and we are condemned to uninterrupted maternity or we are forced to resort to backstreet abortionists. When the workers we produce are not disciplined enough or when we claim some money for the cost of raising them, that is, when we are not disciplined enough, they sterilize us, unquote. So what about now? There is evidence that the nervousness among the powerful about the quote-unquote overproduction of black children faded in the early 70s as the general overpopulation craze passed and as the most revolutionary parts of the black liberation movement were crushed with many leaders assassinated, imprisoned, or exiled. Current federal and state policies seem to be mainly aimed at coercing the production of babies regardless of race. The Hyde Amendment has stopped Medicaid from covering abortions since 1977, and while 17 states now fund some abortions through Medicaid, bypassing the Hyde restrictions, not one of those states is in the South, where more than half of African Americans reside. Medicaid enrollment is 41% white, 22% black, 25% Latino, and 12% other people of color. In Mississippi, where SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, exposed involuntary sterilizations in the 1960s, there is now only one abortion clinic. Black feminist theoretician and organizer Loretta Ross of Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective has argued that U.S. restrictions on birth control serve to push white women to produce more babies, in part to balance out the political power of people of color. She says, quote, many of the restrictions on abortion, contraception, and scientifically accurate sex education and stem cell research are directly related to an unsubtle campaign of positive eugenics to force heterosexual white women to have more babies. While white babies are encouraged, Ross writes, quote, in contrast, children of color are often deemed unwanted, excessive, and perceived as a threat to the body politic of the United States by being described as a youth bulge, creating a dysfunctional education system, economic chaos, environmental degradation, and a criminal underclass, unquote. Is the racist rhetoric identified by Ross an indication that the powerful want to stop black women from having children? Dorothy Roberts, in her book Killing the Black Body, writes, Although some blacks believe that white-controlled family planning literally threatens black survival, I take the position that racist birth control policies serve primarily an an ideological function. The chief danger of these programs is not the physical annihilation of a race or social class, Rather, the chief danger of these policies is the legitimation of an oppressive social structure. Proposals to solve social problems by curbing black reproduction make racial inequality appear to be the product of nature rather than power. Of course, there are racists who would like to reduce the number of people of color relative to white people or who fear a majority-minority country in which European Americans are projected to be less than 50% of the population by 2050. And Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign was pitched to voters with those anxieties. But those running the country face the same contradictions we saw in slavery days and in ongoing immigration fights, needing an abundant oppressed workforce, but uneasy about the political implications. 
Well, we perused the reports of elite think tanks, and one thing we learned was that the politician's term pro-family has a very specific meaning. This phrase always seemed to be hypocrisy coming from Republicans who are usually found trying to cut the services that families need. But it's not just hype, and there's a specific political program behind it. If you're going to cut government programs or forestall new ones, you need to push those functions into the family, by which they mean women's unpaid labor. Listen to conservative reformers Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam on their vision of small government, big family America. Quote, crafting pro-family policies is not a question of turning back the clock to some lost Ozean Harriet golden age. Quite the opposite, precisely because the world has changed with the demise of lifetime employment and increasing returns to education, strong families are growing ever more important and policies that encourage people to form them and keep them together are ever more necessary, unquote. So when unemployment or illness hit, in other words, people should be made to rely on their families for solace and support, the better to allow for cuts in unemployment insurance, welfare, health care, home care, social security, and education funding. Duthat, who is now a New York Times columnist, explained in an interview that not just strong families, but large families are required. One of the things we've seen over the last 30 years, he writes, is that in the absence of government programs, people aren't able to function usually as atomized individuals. You need some intermediary institutions if you're going to have small government. So you need strong families. You need people who are willing to have large families, for instance, which can then help provide for them in their old age. So if Republicans are serious about reforming Social Security or finding a way to increase the number of young workers paying into the program, then having a country with higher population growth, larger families, is an obvious and conservative way to do it. That's the end of the Russ Duthat quote. You're listening to Jenny Brown on women, labor pains. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and her book, Birth Strike, the hidden fight over women's work by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So we call this program Small Government Big Families, and this focus on families, as in the Fire and Brimstone group, focus on the family, makes perfect sense. These groups have a different understanding of family than most of us do. Families are not based on love or uh, to face the challenges of life. Their idea is that the family is a production unit for children. And this seems to be the underlying motive for a lot of anti-LGBT politics and discrimination. Rick Santorum uh former governor, uh, former uh, senator from Pennsylvania, is explicit on this point. The point of marriage is to have babies, and he argues that marriage equality will lead to lower birth rates. Anyone who deviates from this model must be punished in an effort to get everyone to conform. Well, when we compare our situation to Europe, where the birth rate is as low or lower than the United States, we found that there the birth rate is openly discussed as a problem by politicians and in newspapers. Efforts to raise the birth rate have mostly focused on making it easier to have children by fully funding childcare and providing long-paid parental leaves. But in some places, like Turkey and Poland, leaders attack reproductive rights with the open goal of raising the birth rate, and in others like France and Sweden, where there are stronger feminist movements, governments promote policies that support parenting, and they've experienced higher birth rates as a result. 
And then some countries like Russia are doing both, increasing maternity leave and government uh, payments to parents while gnawing away at access to abortion and contraception. In all cases, though, the reasons for the policy are out in the open. How can we get women to make more babies? One way is to make it easier to combine work and family. Stefan Kronert, a German demographer, observes, quote, For a long time, politicians said that the high participation of women in the labor market is responsible for the low birth rate, because when women go out into the labor market, they don't have children anymore. But interestingly, when you look at Western European countries, the fertility rate is higher in countries with a higher labor market participation of women, unquote. And then he refers to the difficult conditions for German parents with school days that end at noon and little provision for childcare. And he says, quote, women who decide they want a modern life with financial independence and their own professional career are very often deciding to have no children at all. The lack of childcare makes women dependent on their husbands, and most women don't like this, unquote. In an article called Breaking the Baby Strike, The Economist explained the falling birth rate in Turkey. Quote, ask Turkish women about work and motherhood, and the response is a torrent of grievances. Husbands do little housework. Employers are unsympathetic. In short, mothers are generally still expected to stay home. And until that changes, Turkish women will perceive a sharp choice between work and parenthood and often go for the first. U.S. journalist Stephanie Mensimer puts it more bluntly. She says, conservatives thought if they only made it harder for mothers to work, women would stay home. Instead, women stopped having kids. So in our group, the falling birth rate made perfect sense to us. Many of us were in our 30s. We could clearly see how the difficult conditions we face cause us to decide to have fewer children. I remember a consciousness-raising meeting in 2015 where as we went around the room, we discovered that several of us had stopped at one child because we found it just to be too difficult. The cost, the exhaustion, the double day of working eight or more hours and then coming home and doing eight hours of care work and cooking and housework. Those of us who had male spouses were already doing more at home than they were, and the work of rearing one child was already as much as we could handle, and in some cases more. Uh, One woman testified that it was like the water was up to her neck, and another child would just feel like drowning. And these were women who did want two children or more. They didn't feel their family was complete with only one. Others of us who didn't have kids testified that while we wanted them, it just didn't seem feasible given our unreliable health insurance or jobs that didn't provide leave. Or from watching our mothers struggle, we believed that it would put us in a sexist trap that would squeeze the rest of our lives. We found our spouses were hesitant too, given their work lives or economic circumstances. Um, 16 of these testimonies are in the book. So it made sense to us why this spontaneous birth slowdown or strike was happening. Women were responding to difficult conditions, but we were all blaming ourselves or thinking this was just our own isolated situation. And this is where consciousness raising, the uh, method developed by the 1960s women's liberation movement, becomes so important because we can compare our experiences and draw conclusions and figure out who is benefiting. So we believe that all over the country there are women like us who are blaming themselves when they want kids and don't see how they can make it work. They're thinking, oh, if I'd gone into a better paying profession or I could find a job with real paid leave or if I could just find the right child care arrangement, if I hadn't gone into so much debt for school. In other words, we see it as something that we individually did wrong rather than seeing this as a system that requires our unpaid work to function. How was this ever supposed to work? A look at the period of the baby boom is helpful when the average family peaked at 3.6 kids. 
for a time after World War II, people expected the wages of one full-time male breadwinner to pay his expenses and those of his spouse and their children. And this was true at least for the unionized portion of the workforce. It was called the family wage, and it was given as the justification for paying men more than women. He has a family to support. Fringe benefits like health insurance were provided through the man's job. And then women were kept out of higher-paying men's jobs by a mix of law, custom, and individual discrimination. Well, over several decades, women have broken down barriers to more rewarding jobs and careers and gained a measure of economic independence and satisfaction as a result. But starting in the 1970s, as wages stagnated and costs rose, households kept up by sending both spouses out to work, meaning that each couple is now generating 80 or more hours a week of work for employers, where it had been 40. The job that the non-wage earning spouse used to do, child rearing, housework, and caring for sick or frail family members, is no longer included in one worker's paycheck. Instead, it's squeezed into the few hours in the day left after the paid work. The family wage was sexist because it locked in discriminatory pay and made women dependent on male breadwinners. But it had one important progressive element that has not been replaced. At least it meant the employer was contributing resources towards that family care job. Well, rather than go back to the sexist system of the family wage, which made women reliant on men for support, we argue that the feminist way to arrange the care economy is to go forward to an increased social wage. Um, this is a term used in Europe to describe services and benefits that everyone in the society receives as a right. The most obvious is health care, where everyone is guaranteed full coverage no matter what, but also universal child care, paid family leave for both parents. In Sweden, they have 16 months paid sick leave mandated by law and shorter work hours. In Germany, they work on average 10 fewer weeks a year than we do. But all of this will require employers to put in significant resources by paying their taxes, and it will require them to give up some measure of control over their employees by allowing them to take long leaves. So it's not just... Um, a question of enlightening our employers and elected officials, there is definitely a power struggle, struggle involved. So at this point, you're probably asking yourself, what about immigration? Immigration has been described as the American solution to the employing class's problem of lower birth rates. But immigration has always caused discomfort as well as joy for the ruling class, a contradiction that has been a recurring theme in U.S. history. As we saw in the 1870s and again at the beginning of the 20th century, immigration and the birth rate were often discussed in the same breath. If native-born women don't have more children, we'll be overrun by immigrants. So fear of Slavs, Jews, Catholics, and Chinese have been replaced with fear of Latinos and Muslims, but the alarmist claims endure. They're disloyal, they'll bring foreign ideas, an alien religion, class conflict, crime, drugs, they won't assimilate, they'll come to outnumber real Americans. But still, distaste for outsiders always seem to yield when employers need their brain and muscle. These days, while Democrats largely embrace immigration as an answer to low birth rates, the Republican establishment is clearly split. One faction supports immigration, while the other complains that immigrants will demand government benefits, vote for Democrats, and even bring class war. And even the pro-immigration side worries that the flow of immigrants is unsustainable politically, and lately they have been worried that the supply will run out due to declining birth rates in the sending countries. Pro-immigration Republicans are quite, and I have to say, they're pro-immigration, but they're not pro-immigrants having rights, right? 
Um, Pro-immigration Republicans are quite candid that they favor immigration to compensate for the U.S. Uh, birth rate. The late Ben Wattenberg of the Pro-Corporate American Enterprise Institute wrote, quote, a baby born nine months from now won't even start paying into life's Ponzi scheme for a generation. And that happens only after we spend a lot of money to raise and educate the child. A quicker fix would be instant adults. As it happens, they are available, immigrants. So Wattenberg is letting slip a truth that is often hidden in the immigration debate, and that is that immigration is a colossal ripoff of the labor and resources of the mothers, parents, communities, and countries that the immigrants leave behind. This reverses the mainstream narrative that immigrants are a drain on the economy and should be grateful to be here. In fact, Mexico, India, the Dominican Republic, and other sending countries are subsidizing U.S. employers by raising these workers to adulthood. So this has all led to some seeming contradictions in the power structure narrative about immigration. For example, the Koch brothers, hardly known for their concern for the well-being of immigrants, have been pushing, I guess it's now just the one Koch brother, right? Have been pushing Congress to allow people brought to the U.S. as youngsters to stay, the dreamers. Um, and even Trump, while he sends troops to the border to block women and children seeking asylum in the U.S., he supports adding 30,000 slots to the H-2B guest worker program because the one thing they all agree on is that they don't want immigrants to have rights, either on the job or in the community. This is why they favor crackdowns that terrorize immigrant communities at the same time supporting guest worker programs which give employers complete control. And in keeping with their desire not to spend anything to raise and educate their workforce, both Republican factions oppose family reunification, which from their perspective brings non-workers like parents and children who might need health care and education. So to wrap up, as long as we think of the battle over abortion and birth control as primarily a cultural conflict in which the two sides simply hold different worldviews, it's not clear why corporate owners and establishment planners would have much interest one way or the other. But if we look at the battle as a fight over the production of humans, how many, how fast, and at what cost, then it seems likely that employers as a class would have an intense interest. They would especially care when they're called upon to put in resources as they are whenever we demand paid family leave or childcare. So reversing our declining birth rate does serve an economic goal. An ever-expanding workforce raised with a minimum of public spending and a maximum of women's unpaid work. Why would employers pay for parental leave if they can get away with not providing it? And why would corporations pay taxes for a national childcare system if families can be induced to take that burden upon themselves? But women and all parents are refusing, as our lowest ever birth rate demonstrates, and that gives us some leverage. As the birth rate goes down, the value of our unpaid labor raising successive generations can see, be seen more clearly by everyone. So we think it's time to bring the battle out into the open and raise some demands. Uh, what's a strike without demands, after all? So our proposed feminist program is to first show how the U.S. economy relies on women's unpaid work with employers and the rich benefiting disproportionately but making little contribution. Second, defy the expectation that women will work a double day, a full day of work for pay, and then eight hours more of unpaid care work and housework in the home. And third, use the new consciousness and leverage of our spontaneous birth strike to win our immediate demands for guaranteed health care, paid family leave, child care, and shorter work hours for all, all of which are already in place in so many other countries. Now, I should say a few words about my group. 
National Women's Liberation is a dues-funded feminist group founded in 2009 to carry on the ideas and spirit of the radical women's liberation movement of the 1960s, and we have roots in the oldest women's liberation group in the South, Gainesville, Florida, women's liberation, and also in Red Stockings, which is the germinal New York-based group that brought us so many of the key ideas of the women's liberation movement, including consciousness raising and the first abortion speak out. And Red Stockings continues today as a think tank and archive at redstockings.org. National Women's Liberation also has a Women of Color Caucus, which meets separately from white women to analyze the connections between white supremacy and male supremacy and how they work together. If you're interested in National Women's Liberation, our website is womensliberation.org. I'm happy to take questions or hear discussion. Have you talked more about um, why you think the issue of a declining birth rate is not more open in U.S. politics, um, especially as you are comparing it to countries in Europe where it is kind of openly discussed? Yeah, I think the reason that it's not more open is that all of the solutions are coercive. So in the U.S., we are we do not have really much debate about. For example, the national childcare system, it's just starting to be discussed a little bit in the, um, in the presidential election, but there certainly has not been a big move for it. So really the only solutions that are presented by both the Democrats and the Republicans when you have tr- trouble having and raising kids are to just lean in a little bit more and, or, hey, you had a choice, right? So, uh, because birth control and abortion are still technically legal in this country, they can basically blame us for not being able to have the resources to raise our children. You know, it's one thing to, in Sweden, say, gosh, the birth rate is low, let's like, put a bunch of money into child care. It's another thing for in the U.S. to say the birth rate is low, gee, let's make abortion illegal, right? That sounds much worse. They they try to make it seem to be a cultural conflict around the... Uh, personhood of fetuses and and so forth. And I I think that's a lot safer for them because it doesn't require them to look at what resources would be required to make it feasible for people to have kids. It was exactly following up on what you just said now, which is you were like, well, they do this and they do that, so I want to know who the they is. And what struck me as part of that is there's a way in which this is like a, there's a sort of rational thing that would make sense for the ruling class to, you know, make sure that there's enough people to actually do the work. And if they're also rational, it seems like immigration is a brilliant idea. Much more brilliant than not allowing women to have abortions. I mean, it just seems more efficient. So I'm just wondering about the, the forms of rationality and, and where the disjunctures come from and how you would put in kind of fundamental forms of misogyny and racism as also not just capitalism as structuring what happens? Well, the answer to the first part of your question is somewhat reflective of what I think is going on in the second part. Um, So who are they? Well, it's a motley concatenation of think tanks and corporate planners and politicians and they have a bunch of splits between them. They're constantly arguing about things. Um, one of the splits is between the paleocons and the reformicons. 
the paleocons basically want to just force women back into the home. The reformicons think that, you know, we should throw a few dimes to working class families to create a, a working class base in the Republican Party. Both of those are factions of the Republican Party. They don't really know what to do about a lot of things. So, so part of the reason it looks a little confused and weird is because they're having fights within immigration is the big area where they are split now. Although I have to say that I would estimate from reading all of this stuff that 80% of certainly 100% of Democratic Party lean leaning think tanks and 80% of Republican leaning think tanks are for immigration. They they have settled on immigration as the solution to this problem. But Increasingly, there are a few problems that they have around this. Obviously, the employers want compliant workers who don't have rights. That's their goal. And so this is why guest worker programs sort of thread the needle for them, because guest workers only they come here at the pleasure of the employer. They are required to stay employed at that employer where they can be deported. They do not bring family who are regarded as an expense by these people. And they're very explicit about this. Jeb Bush wrote a book with a, another guy called Immigration Wars. He's very pro-immigration. But he's against family reunification because, oh, these people cost too much money. What we really need is the worker. And so guest worker programs are ideal because as soon as the job ends, you can deport the person and they never have any say in their community. They're never on a road to citizenship or membership as a community member who can speak out. If you annoy the boss in any way, such as demanding your paycheck, you can be deported. So this is really the solution that they have settled on that they all agree about. At the same time, you know, they are terrorizing immigrant communities, as we see. It has the effect of making it very hard for people to demand their rights under this regime that we have of busting unions and wage theft and all of the things that people are experiencing on their jobs. The other thing that they're worried about, and I think this is kind of like represented maybe more by the Trump wing, is several states are already a majority people of color, including California and Texas. And they see sort of two routes to go. There's the California route, where you actually have Latino voting power, and it has affected politics in terms of wages, um, union density, uh, environmental regulations. Um, and then you have Texas, where the white power structure is using whiteness to stay in power, even though they are now a minority in, in their state, right? So they're using this extreme gerrymandering. Um, and they're, uh, they're, it's not that they care so much about the white people of Texas, right? If they could make a buck off them, they will happily kill them. But, um, as we see with the, uh, with the opiate crisis, but, uh, but white people are valuable in the sense that they tend to identify with the white power structure rather than identifying with people in their, class who actually have common interests with them. So this has been the trick of racism all, all along, right? It's a way to manipulate white people. I mean, you don't need, as, as people, people say, you know, if you're going to, um, you don't need something as elaborate as an ideology to keep black people down, you just need tanks. But to keep white people down, you need this ideology that 
Trump and other white people in charge really love you because you're white. There's a, this identification. On that score, one of the thing, one of the ways to re- react to that is to say, stop the immigrants coming in because we're really just holding on by our fingernails with like this decreasing number of white people who are keeping us in power. Um, and it's very similar to this moment in Mississippi where the white people realize if black people all register to vote, those white folks are going to be out of there. Now, that's not to say that every person of color is going to vote progressive or every white person is obviously going to vote conservative, but that does tend to be the case. And uh, I think a lot of immigrants also have not been lied to over the generations the way we have about class struggle. So they have more of a class struggle approach to things and have been leading some of the important immigrant struggles early this century, as they did early in the last century. So that is also a concern. I think all of those things are sort of being weighed in, and different factions have different reactions to what to do about it. I think there is definitely a faction that thinks if we can increase the white birth rate, we can solve some of these problems. Other factions are just worried about what they call Japanification, in which the absolute population has gone down in Japan, and it, they are blaming the stagnation of the Japanese economy on that. So they're very much worried about overall growth, and so they might not be as concerned about bringing in immigrants might be a solution for them, but they're fighting among themselves about what to do. And I think the thing is that by our actions, whether it's immigrants organizing for their rights, us organizing for higher wages, us organizing unions, us not having adequate numbers of kids by their lights, all of this is forcing them into kind of try to react to what we're doing. I'm trying to sort of expose the bare bones of what's going on there so that we can see how our organizing fits into this. And Because I think a lot of times we feel like we really don't have any power, we're really not affecting anything, things are just getting worse. But in fact, there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface which is a direct response to all the organizing that we're doing and, and our reactions to bad living conditions, which is what this birth strike is. Thanks. That was Jenny Brown on women, labor pains. She spoke at the University of California at Berkeley. Jenny Brown is a national women's liberation organizer and former editor of Labor Notes. She's the author of Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Arundhati Roy, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, and Winona LaDuc. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Jenny Brown on Women, Labor Pains, and for her book, Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.com.
www.kronosquartet.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. smart friends and uh, they, they told me that the the universe is uh kind of shaped like a really big empty space burrito and what you do is it, it'd be like you cut the ends off and you empty the filling and you have what would be essentially the space the the shape of the the universe now what's important is that the the space burrito causes time and space to curve on itself now when the radio broadcasts broadcast into the cosmic tube and the universe will bring radio back forever and ever CJSW 90.9 FM radio forever forever radio <laughs>